Steve is a reclusive figure, a very liminal figure. There's there's not much to him, so of, uh, he could just evaporate into steam at any moment. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Hello. Today we've got two guests, Alan Moore and Mitch Jenkins, whose book Unearthing has just come out. Today we're going to be talking about Unearthing, uh, a new book from Knockabout, which is ostensibly a biography of Steve Moore, but is also a psychogeographical exploration of... Shooters Hill and the areas around it. We're joined by Alan Moore and Mitch Jenkins. Alan Moore being a comic creator, who uh, one of the biggest names in comics, created Watchmen, V for Vendetta, From Hell, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and other things, which we'll uh, talk about afterwards. And Mitch Jenkins, uh, photographer, who you have no doubt have seen some of his advertising work. We're recording at Gosh Comics in Berwick Street, where we spoke to Alan and Mitch. Well, they also did a Q&A, which uh, is also available on our website on southlondonhardcore.com. We'll be talking about unearthing and uh, some of Alan Moore's work, but first of all, uh, here's a, the chat we have with them. I mean, I've only just found out recently that we missed a couple of people from the unearthing roster of uh, famous Shooters Hill residents, in that uh, we missed out on Boy George. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. who was born just up the yeah. road from Steve's and we missed out on Edith Bagnold mm-hmm. who Bagnold. was the person who wrote National Velvet oh, right, which... and International Velvet yeah, yeah. and uh, she was I believe a morphine addict um, <laughs> up there on top of Shooter's Hill sort of whacked out of her skull a morphine addict on Shooter's Hill I mean it writes itself <laughs> I, I, well, I remember that my former musical partner Tim Perkins he once wrote a number called Intergalactic Velvet, which he thought would be the great <laughs> the next level. Uh, the, next, the, the next level, yeah, yeah the third part Let's of the trilogy. Let's finish trilogy, yeah. Uh, but I can imagine Edith Bagnold on some of her sort of wilder nights. <laughs> she that might not have been too far from the truth. Intergalactic Velvet. <laughs> she probably wrote out the next day. Went, ah, yeah. no one will go for it. It's an ever-changing project, isn't it? So, I mean, you can always uh, yeah. You know, oh well, we, well, there will be probably an earthing eventually this is going to be the sequel to one I think ah. but that won't be for a few years yet until I've got all of this other stuff yeah tidied away and it'll be a sort of complimentary piece to unearthing yeah it'll be of... what's happened to Steve Moore's life since I wrote unearthing ah. um, because that kind of changed everything and stuff was changing anyway um, but uh, I mean one of the main things is that Mitch got involved um, in what had previously just been me writing a biography of Steve yeah. that kind of uh, altered everything um, I mean very delightfully Steve yeah. enjoyed the process but it meant that he had to be impersonated by Bob Goodman uh, <laughs> which is something that you wouldn't really wish on anybody would you? No. No, oh is this no. in the photographs of the book? In the photographs yes yeah, so so they're but, not Steve, I, I assume that was Steve No was Steve Moore is Right at the very, very back. Oh, okay. Because he didn't want to be in it. Because right. He's a very shy man. Yeah. And there he is, standing on a box, pouring water 
over Bob Goodman, Bob Goodman <laughs> who is playing Steve Moore, yeah. for the final... The rainstorm right. sequence. Yeah, yeah. In the book. Uh, yeah, one. so that was all Steve <laughs> off-panel with a watering can. can. <laughs> and you can tell by the look on his face, he really enjoyed doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he loved it. Because we'd invaded his life for three years. Yeah. yeah and you, counting. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, you... and. It was during that time that Steve's brother, Chris, uh, was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. And so, I mean, one of my favourite pictures out of the many glorious pictures in that book is the picture of Chris Moore. Um, I think that's Melinda's and Melinda's Steve's definitely. as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, all the stuff about his cactuses. Yeah. Uh, we've got some... Mitch got a glorious shot. Of one of his cactuses, yeah, which will, yeah, we'll be getting some use out of that particular thing. Um, all of these bits of the project, they all kind of continue on into other areas. So it started as a planned biography of Steve Moore because I always understood it was it was the essay that was in City of Disappearances yeah. it was the first time it saw that was public it. form, wasn't that it? That was it was because that was what I was I was asked for, right. Um, but were you already working on the biography? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. No. I mean, sort of. Uh, Ian Sinclair just asked if uh, I could do a piece for London City of Disappearances that was about people who were disappearing, had disappeared, or would disappear, or or things or places that were in the process of disappearing somewhere within the uh, um, within London. And I thought, well, Steve. He's just about within London. He's right on the edge of Kent. Um, so it's a pretty liminal position he's in to start with. And yes, he's not disappearing any faster than anybody else, but when he's gone, he's such an unusual person that um, his loss, his disappearance, will probably have more far-reaching consequences than a lot of other people's. So I, I I wrote this thing, um, I think fifty pages. Uh, very pleased with it. I was collaborating with um, Steve all the way, and then uh, this was what launched the entire um, resurgence of my contact and collaboration with Mitch. You know, I'd literally gone round to Alan's. I was getting not so much bored. I don't want to use that phrase, but I was just become a little bit jaded with my work in the advertising industry always illustrating other people's um, badly drawn pictures from creative directors we want it to look like this <laughs> so go off and we'd be selling this product or this TV show or this film um, so I literally went pop around to see Alan who I'd seen on and off over the last 30 years knocked on the door and had a cup of tea and said you know have you got a bit of A4 just with a few random thoughts on it that I can go away and do something that's going to be really interesting that I can really visualise. No was the answer. So I was like, oh, was a waste of fucking time. But he said, but I've got this. And he pulls out Unearthing, and um, he gives it to me, and he said, go away, have a read. I went away and had a read, um, came back and just thought, well, I can't just take one or two lines. If I'm going to get involved with this project, I want to visualise the whole thing, have something that looks completely different and hasn't been done before. So I went back, discussed it with Alan. He then put me in touch with Steve. And once Steve had said, yes, it's okay, um, that's how it started. It was backwards and forwards to shoot the hill. Yeah. Trying to visualise the whole book. 
um, and then we've got two really good designers, Mark Millington and Paul Chessel. Great guys. Paul didn't come in until towards the end of the process, but Mark had been working on designing it for, on and off for three or four years. And we'd get some pages that were beautiful and others that I felt were just going too far in one direction and wasn't too keen with. So I then got Paul to come in and give us an overview of what he thought of the project. And he said, oh, a bit of simplicity, chucked in a few ideas, worked on some pages. We'd, we'd, we'd pop round to Alan's and say, what do you reckon? I'm liking this. And he said, yeah, this works. Let me talk about it. And then, yeah, six years later, here we are tonight. So in, in terms of actually uh, you know, what you'd call field work, actually going to Shooters Hill to to do work directly for your project. I imagine you... you had I've been going there since I was 14. Absolutely, yeah. Did you, but did you make specific visits after that? Oh, yeah. Of, well, yeah. I mean, once I'd, when I'd started planning the work, um, I realised that I was going to need um, some reference about Shooters Hill and its history, uh, which we, I was able to dig up with Steve's help from various sources. I was also going to need Steve's memory of his own life. Luckily, he's the kind of anal retentive guy who's kept journals of everything, including his dreams, for over 30 years, you know. So I wasn't without um, reference material. But, uh, yeah, I've been going there since I was 14, and the mystique of the area. I'd had plenty of time to soak that up. I knew about um, Algernon Blackwood, having his birthplace over in Oxley's Woods. Um, I knew about the surrounding areas, about the highwayman stories, uh, about Caesar having made his first invasion of Britain um, over the top of Shooter's Hill, and Julius Agricola, about 50 years later, his more successful invasion. All of this stuff, we just sort of soaked it all up. I was lucky enough to find... Um, what the geological underpinnings of Shooters Hill are, and this fantastic fact that uh, Shooters Hill created London. Yeah. That uh, if a, a chalk fault hadn't collapsed on the north face of Shooters Hill, that was what gouged out the Thames Valley. Without the Thames Valley, no Thames. Without the Thames, no London. Mm. Um, it's remarkable, isn't it? That you can trace things back to just one geographical point. Yeah. And the thing is, it was so perfect because Steve has lived in exactly the same spot uh, all of his life. And I don't know of another single human being who has done that. Um, there probably are people, but very, very few. Very few and far between. I think you, in, in the piece you say uh, he sleeps no more than four paces from where he was born, where he was which born. is a remarkable thing to That's be able to His entire life. life circles around that house that little close up there on the top of the hill you know it's his geography um and his parents before him when they got the place in the 1930s because hey it was a step up it was above the rabble it was sort of uh, a nice little hilltop community pretty much independent uh, it was a step up in the world and this was just before the uh, the Second World War and the Luftwaffe, um, which made it perhaps not quite such an ideal, no. desirable residence. Um, and then when the uh, the Luftwaffe, when the Battle of Britain stopped, 
they thought, oh, thank God that's over, we can have a son. So they had uh, Chris, Steve's oldest brother, just before the V-bomb started. Um, and you still, you go up to Pewters Hill and there's rows of identical houses and every third or fourth one a completely different style mm. because those were the ones that the V-bombs hit. From what I hear, uh, British High Command was actually uh, leaking false information to the yeah. Germans, telling them that, oh, your V-bombs are overshooting London and are landing harmlessly in, um, you know, the fields to the north. So the Germans thought, right, we'll put a bit less fuel in them. And basically, yeah, we don't care if South London gets flattened as long as they're not landing in W1. Mm, yeah, we've talked about it on the show before. They did, during the Battle of Britain as well, they would they'd, uh, send out false intelligence about strikes that the Luftwaffe made, so that they and it would encourage them to to basically and they would skew it south rather than north on the basis that you know they could undershoot but not overshoot. You know, they yeah. they get it done as early as possible, and South London took the brunt of that. But it is. I mean, I think that you know with what Mitch has brought to this, I mean, just the eye for the image. I mean, some of those images in there are extraordinary because, yes, there are, there's like that, that picture of the bull that's kind of fractured into yeah. mm-hmm. lots of separate images. And then there's pictures of the, the giant Nazi flying saucers oh, yeah, that's <laughs> of, of a scene that has never existed yeah. and never will. <laughs> That was just a passing phrase, yeah. a passing fancy. But it's a real challenge for someone piloted by Hitler's brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we were, well, we weren't going to do the, the more machines, but you know, we just we, we just thought let's, let's not let's not overcomplicate it. <laughs> it's a very rich. I mean, this is the thing that it doesn't matter how dull or grey or forgettable you think that these little urban corners are. That no matter where they are. If you look at them with an incisive enough eye, with a sympathetic enough eye, then you can find imagery and words and concepts that are impossibly rich. I mean, considering that this is talking about one man living in one house, in one house, in one very restricted little area of London, um, I think that the kind of Material that we have unearthed, yeah. shall we say, um, <laughs> it's, it's treasure. It's yeah. uh, it's one, and I'm, I'm I'm not saying that. Now, yes, I do think that Steve Moore is one of the most interesting people in the world. I do think that um, after Northampton, Shooters Hill is one of the most interesting places in the world. Uh, but that's just me. Uh, I'm sure that if anybody else were to look at the place where they were situated that intensely then with a little bit of poetry you know with an eye for a nice picture you could do something like unearthing you could elevate the place where you're living and make it a kind of a mythological landscape we've found so so often on the show we think you know we're talking about areas that we've lived in and grown up in and visited all our lives but as you say just digging a little bit and you just find these remarkable things that just never occur to you and it is it's so it's so rich isn't it all of you know and as you say it's not uh, you know it's not Northampton it's not it's anywhere in the world if, if you look at it in the right way and you're prepared to put yeah. the work in and, and make the connections it's marvellous yeah. it's marvellous I mean 
I don't know, you, you weren't with us much, but uh, during the Olympics, um, I went up to Steve's and uh, he said, he, he took me over into Oxley's Woods um, to the, the cafe, which is where uh, Algernon Blackwood's birthplace was. <coughs> and um, it was where they'd got the uh, the surface-to-air missiles. Oh, their batteries. For the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd taken Brian Catlin and Ian Sinclair over there the week before. And when we went, and when, when they'd gone, um, there were children just playing around this thing because it had got um, a generator near it. So the kids were just waiting for the bouncy castle to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and when and when when I got there, um, there was this thing. It looked like I vaguely remember from Doctor Who when I was a child. This might have been the television series, or it might have been Ron Turner's comic strip in TV Twenty One. But there was an Emperor Dalek that had got a big black round head. Um. That's what the surface-to-air missile thing looks like. I presume mm. that this big sphere mm. is presumably the control, the command unit of the of the thing. That's the, the guidance radar thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The guidance system. And then it's got a quiver of two Stinger missiles on either side. And it was there on a brilliantly sunny day. You get children playing around it, people having picnics on the grass. And it's sighting from left to right, angling upwards aiming at these totally blank pieces of sky, swivelling round, seeming to track the movement of the children who are playing (laughs) ten feet away from it. And after watching this for a while, I thought, this isn't loaded, is it? This, none of these are loaded. Um, If you shoot down a terrorist plane over London you are guaranteed to do just as much damage, if not more, than whatever the terrorists were planning. Well, just look at Lockerbie. What happens when a plane blows up and falls out of the sky? Well, look at what happens when uh, that helicopter flew into a crane. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just before Christmas. I mean, all right, I think only one or two people got killed. But that was, boy, an incredible fluke of luck. Um, So I thought it would make much more sense to uh, do highly publicised... Um, dummy missiles or unarmed missiles mm. um, yeah get a lot of publicity put them on the top of tower blocks whether you know that the residents will complain yeah. that will get it in all the papers yeah. Um, and yeah put them in all these highly publicised places and as Steve Moore pointed out actually it was like they were following some sort of occult grid in, or at least a literary Occult grid uh, in the sighting of all those missiles. There was the ones at Shooters Hill, right near where Algernon Blackwood's house had been. There were the ones down in Blackheath, uh, which was where uh, David Lindsay, who wrote Voyage to Arcturus, um, had lived um, when he was writing it. There were some at the Bryant and May factory, the old Bryant and May factory on the river which was where Annie Besant had organised the Match Girls strike. She was, of course, a famous theosophist. Um, There were some in Epping Forest, which were at the site of the madhouse that John Clare was (laughs) kept in before he walked back to Northampton and a different madhouse. 
It's like oh. that scene in From Hell where he goes round in the uh, yeah <laughs> in the in the course and cart and just I, I up kind of get an impression looking at a lot of modern culture that yeah a lot of people they probably read far too many of my books uh, <laughs> when they were younger and now they're in positions of power. <laughs> you said that um, sort of whichever area you pick, uh, you, there's many things to unearth, many sort of uh, rich histories. Um, but in unearthing you find a lot of kind of threads and links that link Steve Moore to the area Um, that's obviously something that you uh, were very conscious of well yeah it's more that Steve Moore grows out of the area and I believe that any of us um, we are products of the place that we spring from it's like in fractal mathematics there's a there's the, the Mandelbrot set, which everybody's seen, this incredibly complex fractal construction. There are smaller subsets within that that are called Julia sets. The Julia sets are all, they all look pretty much the same, but they are all uniquely different, and their individual properties are caused by the point in the Mandelbrot set from which they originate. And I think that that is true of human beings as well. Um, that how can we help but be influenced by the actual landscape that we emerge from I would say that it's much more likely that we are influenced by the bricks and mortar and trees and people and streets around us when we're born than that we are influenced by the actions of some impossibly remote constellation um, it sort of it seems like a, a, a likelier bet to me, and to some degree, I suppose with unearthing, what we were saying was that you can't separate people and landscape; that you have to consider them together. If you're doing a work of psychogeography, it will probably always end up as a work of psychobiography, and vice versa. That you start to investigate somebody like Steve Moore, you cannot consider him separately to the place that he emerged from so yeah the human and the human's habitat are inextricably part of the same thing if you go to southlandhardcore.com you can hear more from Mitch Jenkins and Alan Moore we'll have the Q&A they recorded afterwards I read Unearthing initially as an essay in London City Disappearances which was an anthology put together by Ian Sinclair where he basically asked a lot of people whose work he admired to write about something in London they thought had disappeared or was going to disappear at some point and Alan Moore uh, chose to write about Steve Moore no relation I think that's yes. that hasn't been hasn't been addressed so far in anything that we've talked about and it, I really enjoyed it um, just as an essay and it's been so interesting and rewarding just following the the development the evolution of this project from from one sort of form uh, to another and seeing how it's been added to and enhanced I first came across it uh, of all places in an NME review of the album <laughs> of, of, of the recording I should yeah, say yeah. and it, they gave it 9 out of 10 don't know why they, why they dropped that point well, they dropped it's, the one, just, it? it's, it's wonderful which we'll come to shortly yeah. and yeah it was a two-hour audio recording, and there was a picture of uh, the cover, 
which is uh, Mitch Jenkins' photo of Alan Moore through like a, a steamy car window, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's a, a marvellous image. Yeah. It's fantastic. And that's what sort of whetted my appetite for the book, actually, later on, when the, you know, it's a photo book coming out of it. You know, that image yeah. just is enough to go, all right, let's see what we've got. And it was a while before I was able to get hold of it because I thought it was just available as a um, vinyl and CD package, which, you know, triple vinyl, yeah, triple CD, uh, and a poster and uh, a, a print of that photograph and um, a dot matrix print out of Alan Moore's um, original, you yeah, know, copy of his, yeah, of, yeah, yeah uh, uh, based on his original. Uh, so I couldn't afford that, but it's on MP- it was on MP3 in the end as well. Yeah, and yeah, marvelous, isn't it? I That's don't know nice. how it works in uh, in written form alone. The recorded version, which is two hours of uh, the uh, Crook and Flail soundtrack, uh, where well, they produced it. It's got people like Stuart Braithwaite from Mogwai and um, a couple of guys from uh, Faith No More on it. Sonically, with Alan Moore's voice as well, you know, it's just this kind of. Well, it's dense... such a rich voice, isn't it? That's it is yeah. his voice on its own, uh, as you've just heard, uh, has a, a, a sort of wonderful tone and quality to it. But the music, um, I think, is fantastic. Really well put together. Really sort of complimentary. And I, you know, I was you know very excited when, when it was announced as a, a live performance. Um, one of the people involved in it is a guy called uh, Dose One, who's in. Uh, he's part of the Anticon Collective, which is like a sort of underground hip hop collective uh, in the states. And he was in uh, a group called uh, Clouded. I don't know if you'd heard any of their stuff, but he did a couple of albums. One's called Clouded, another one called Ten, which is uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff, and really sort of similar sort of uh, sound to the uh, the Crook and Flower stuff from being sort of ambient noise and yeah really really good in July 2010 Alan Moore and the musicians and uh, Mitch Jenkins photographs were put together as a live performance in the Old Vic tunnels in Waterloo and we spoke to Bruce who was there I've been to a couple of Alan Moore events and um, I've got to say this one was really kind of out there and Alan Moore events are generally out there Um, but this one possibly more so than usual Um, he had uh, um, a band sort of playing a kind of techno sort of craftwork type of electronic noises um, thing going on in the background and then you've got Alan's sort of thick Northampton accent sort of reciting this major sort of work um, so it was quite a weird sort of experience but really quite rewarding as well and just a backdrop as well because it was uh, I've never been to the old Vic Tunnels the old Vic Tunnels themselves I think uh yeah, it's an amazing venue. Um, you kind of had to go down a, a labyrinth of different tunnels. Um, the smell of damp was kind of quite pervasive. Oh, nice. Um, Getting down deep into the earth. And yeah, earth it, was, yeah. it was kind of weird, but um, when you actually got down there, there were seats, and at the front, um, the sad ones who queued up long enough. Got to sit on a couple of settees. Were you in that number? And I was, uh, I was one of the people on my, on this sofa, uh, deep down underground. And uh, um, whether the sofa was all damp and everything else, um, I think it might have been. But um, hmm. it was an amazing venue, and uh, he was really on form. Yeah. So this will be your uh, second edition you're buying of the, uh, of yeah, the work. Yeah, I haven't seen it live as well. well then. 
I think that uh, Ben Lafoe was with me on the night I went to see it, and I think he had tickets for the following night as well. Oh, wow. So maybe he's got even more insights to yeah. it. And um, I think on the following night it was quite good because it went on to the early hours of the morning and drinking and revelry and everything <laughs> else. You listened to the recording uh, before I did, mm. and you said something that stuck with me ever since, where... You basically you listened to it, you were blown away by it, and you said we've uh, need to change our name to South London Softcore, <laughs> step, step our game up, innit? Because this this is exactly uh, what an exploration of a place should be, isn't it? Yeah, I'd forgotten that actually. Yeah, but yeah, I did uh, listen to it, and uh, I remember being not ashamed. But <laughs> but yeah, just Inadequate. having a massive feeling of inferiority. Yeah, yeah. Almost as if like you'd sort of uh, drawn a comic, uh, thinking, "Oh, I do a take on superhero comics," and then you went and read Watchmen the next day, and you went, <laughs> "Why have I bothered?" <laughs> yeah, I was overwhelmed by it. Um, partly because it's so dense and uh, so rich, and I enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed almost anything in any medium. It was a bit like that uh, Julian Temple, L- London, the Modern Babylon, yeah, where it was a format that you're not really used to. Yeah, I think the fact that it's uh, such a fresh take on looking at a place, but also so good as well, isn't mm. it? And I think the great thing about it is anyone could listen to that, and I can't imagine people not getting something out of it. But I think for us, particularly once we started this project, where we're like, let's look at South London, and then this guy comes on who's looked at South London, mm. And you realise, right, this is this is almost, you know, pushing it to the limit of what you can do. do doing this, like, spoken word piece of almost uh, epic poetry about the place that is funny and informative and just uh, dizzying in places, isn't it? When you find out that someone's written a piece or recorded a piece about their friend and their friend's life... You, you you have an idea of what it could be. You imagine it's going to be uh, very linear, just a simple biography about... And, you know, particularly with this, you know, part of the, the essence of the piece is the fact that Steve Moore was born and has lived the entire of his life in one place. So you imagine, you know, that will be it, pretty straightforward. The, the key to the piece is the fact that Alan Moore almost starts... At the beginning of human history, he sort of mm. he begins with a a geological look at the location. Forget about geography; he he's looking at the the very elements that that make the place, and it, it's literally about the sort of geological makeup of the area, isn't it? He, he looks yeah. at it as pure space, as as the shape of it, what it's composed of, and how it forms the area around it. Then. He goes into, and it is, it is linear, it goes through the history of the place in terms of figures from history that pop up and, and disappear, events that take a, take place in the surrounding area. But the wonderful thing is, it comes across as this, this lovely piece of social history, but it's almost like he's setting the stage for Steve Moore. It's almost as if mm. the argument is human history up to this point has had one purpose <laughs> yeah. and that has been to provide a cradle for Steve Moore to then be born <laughs> yeah. into um, and then and this is the other thing as well this is a, a, I think a key part of the work Steve Moore is a fascinating individual mm. you know he, he is a man who 
as Alan Moore talks about in the Q&A, who has, has been involved in so many different movements, did, you know, found the first comic convention, or co-found the first comic convention in the UK, was involved in comics, has been involved in the occult, in, in other forms of uh, publishing as well, you know, has just been a, a sort of a key member of so many important groups at important times. So at that point, it's not, it's almost, you'd worry if, you, if you'd if you read about what this was going to be, you sort of go, so you're going to talk about geology and Henry VIII and Dick Turpin, and then you talk about this guy. But this guy is, and, and this is the important thing, isn't it? This guy is as interesting or as valuable mm. as Dick Turpin, as Henry VIII. And this is an important part of the thing as well, isn't it? That individual people, and it, I think this is part of the, the value of the project, in the same way that Alan Moore says, if you look at an area, any area, you can find valuable things to discuss. If you look at any person, every person's individual history is unique. And if you just you know, emphasise the right things and look at it from the right angle, it's going to be fascinating. You said before, Steve, it's uh, about how poetic it is. I mean, it is like an epic poem more than it is uh, even... An e- it's described as an essay, but yeah. you know, I think uh, epic poem does it better, you know, more justice. You, um, on some sort of form of social media the other day, sent me a message that was just a quote from Unearthing, yeah. where it talks about Anne of Cleves arrives over the hill and is sent packing for failing to live up to the hands hold by and PR package that preceded her. Yeah. And you're like, that's just uh, brilliant on uh, so many levels. It's an absolutely essential thing to listen to, isn't it? Yeah, you know, absolutely. If you're sort of making a list of uh, you know Desert Island Discs, or you know the greatest albums ever recorded don't really fit into either of those, but we could cram it in. <laughs> but yeah, if you go to lexprojects.com, you can buy it for three pounds. The MP3, Steve. That's really it's obscene isn't it? value. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Three pounds. Yeah. You can also get the uh, bumper package there with the uh, records and the CDs for fifty pounds. I've seen that in the flesh, and it is a wonderful thing. It's a huge. Um, outsized box beautifully put together but everyone has to be the mp3 don't they i mean i'm insistent on it three (laughs) pounds and it's just come out uh in book form which was uh the purpose of today's uh launch yeah the book was interesting when it was announced that they were going to do it i knew that obviously mitch jenkins had produced photographs and images for the live performance but i'd never seen seen bits and pieces but never seen anything in terms of long form and i did sort of wonder it's. I think you mentioned it in the Q and A. It's the thing of how do you work with Alan Moore's words? You know, uh, famously when he writes comic scripts, they're very conversational. I think he's very good at setting a tone for an artist to work with. So he'll he he tells them what he'd like to see on the page, but obviously leave leaving the freedom to set things out as well. But with this, you've only got the words. There's no direction there, is there? There's not a thing where. And obviously Alan Moore's been involved in the collaborative process, but still, it still comes down to Mitch Jenkins interpreting these words, purely as words, not as scripts with directions, to, to form images. And I think it's quite telling that with the photographs, they're photographs, but he's he's played with them, isn't he? He's played with the images yeah, and enhanced them. Yeah, a lot of uh, and, treatment. And yeah, so. absolutely. And I think that's the, the key, isn't it? If you're, if you're trying to illuminate words like this that are so rich... You need then to sort of go, and these images need to be uh, 
incredibly sort of uh, dense and vivid as well. And I think they are. I think there's some remarkable stuff. And he talks about the the sort of cover image, that great shot of uh, Alan Moore in semi profile with the, the steam glass. But yeah, just um, remarkable image, isn't it? That's not the cover image of the book, though, is it? Yeah, I think the tone of the book, in terms of uh, the set of photographs, matches the audio recording and the words. It is almost overwhelming. You know, you, from page to page, you just you kind of you can't really flick through it. I'm compelled to say that people should come to Gosh to buy the book, Steve, seeing as they were so kindly set us up with uh, the interview. Yeah, Josh, uh, the shop's owner, did great work in terms of coordinating everything for us. So yeah, it's available as a paperback, which is quite big, and uh, £19.99, and also as a hardback, which is £50, uh, but that is huge. I mean, you're kind of getting £50 worth of book. At the moment, and clearly uh, this podcast will be archived for a while, this isn't always going to be valid, but at the moment we've got signed copies of the hardback, which is signed by Alan and Mitch in the shop as well. Yeah, so get into gosh, number one, Berwick Street. Say hello to Steve as well. What struck me while reading the book and while talking to Alan was the sort of echoes with some of his other work as well. I mean, you pointed out when he was talking about the missile silos being placed around South London, how that, you know, and and him and Steve Moore having this theory that they've chosen locations that have literary resonance. And it reminded you of the scene in From Hell where Gull and Netley visit places in London that have uh, a cult significance and you know similarly at the end of uh, our conversation he got talking about Mandelbrot sets and fractal uh, geometry which reminded me I didn't mention it at the time uh, you don't want to disturb him when he's mid-flow do you just uh, let him go but um, he did a project well started a project uh, a few years ago called Big Numbers with uh, initially an artist called uh, Bill Sinkovich and the idea was the story was about a shopping centre open in a town in Britain and the effect it would have on the inhabitants of the town, this huge uh, undertaking happening around them. Um, but it was the idea was structuring the whole story around the idea of fractal geometry and Mandelbrot sets and uh, the idea of the, the ripples of action that move across um, the town. That piece, I say, was never completed. I wrote... Um, do a little plug for me now, isn't it? Yeah. I wrote uh, a blog about it a few years ago on uh, a defunct blog site now where I used to talk about um, incomplete and unfinished work. I'll put a link up uh, to that in a week. But yeah, Big Numbers as a piece, had it sounded like so much potential and clearly the whole significance and uh, idea of fractal geometry matter, but it's still something that um, occupies his mind now when he's thinking about projects, which is interesting. Similarly, as a piece, unearthing resonates a lot with a book he did with Eddie Campbell, uh, who's the guy he worked with on From Hell. Um, he did; it's been collected together as Disease of Language again by Knockabout, um, and that's two pieces: uh, the Birth Call and Snakes and Ladders. Snakes and Ladders, in particular, is quite interesting because, as far as I understand. Uh, and we didn't get a chance to ask about this because it's so far off what we're talking about because it's about hybrids up in uh, North London um, but essentially he was commissioned uh, as far as I understand by a council to write a piece about um, hybrid and he had a look 
and got back to him and said, there's nothing. I can't really find anything or anything worth talking about. And they were like, well, have another look. Um, and he did. And then went, yeah, I've got loads of stuff. There's tons. <laughs> so much to write about. And wrote this wonderful piece all about, yeah, the psychogeography of the area, just the 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 place itself and the influence people had on the place and the place has had on people and the, the sort of echoes through history of certain acts and ideas uh, reverberating and cropping up again and again, which obviously chimes in with From Hell as well and also Unearthing, I think. I'm not nearly as well read in terms of comics as you, Steve, but I've read, uh, you know, From Hell, which is fantastic, and Watchmen, which is an incredible piece of work. From Hell's my favourite thing ever, as in, in any medium, at any time, anything that's ever been produced, From Hell. If you if it's like you take one thing to a desert island, I'll take From Hell. It's fine, you can right. keep all your records and other books and things. I'll, I'll just, probably take so uh, Tom Strong. I've only read the first Tom Strong, but it was fantastic. Yeah, it's great. I enjoyed it so much, man. It's beautiful mm. looking as well. Who's the artist? Uh, Chris Sprouse. Yeah. He's a good one, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, very good. But I was at the Minute Library today, and uh, I thought I'll grab see what they got, and I've got a couple of Preacher, which is uh, obviously not Alan Moore. No, um, but I also took um, Alan Moore, the complete Alan Moore's Future Shocks. Oh yeah, you know, which is uh, Tharg's Future Shocks, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, um, which was created by Steve Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, future Shocks were a, a brilliant little feature in 2008, where it was just tiny scripts like three three or four page mm. scripts uh strips where um it was just a very simple thing where essentially there'd be a twist at the end mm. it was just, they'd set up a certain premise and then there'd be a, a, a twist at the end to confusion yeah funny and I enjoy, i've only read a handful of them i was reading it on the bus on the way here uh brilliant yeah at the minute library steve they had Promethea volumes two to five right yeah <laughs> so I went up to the counter I was like uh, we got volume one and they said someone had it so I was like oh okay I'll just I'll get it when they when they return it but they're going to ship it in from Stratton for me Prometheus a remarkable piece of work oh uh, good the arts by um, a guy called J.H. Williams III who does these I mean some of a vast virus database has been updated <laughs> okay thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Promethea is extraordinary. I went through a, a, a phase a few years ago of, if people asked me what my favourite Alan Moore film was, it'd just be the last thing I've read. So if I'd just read Promethea, I'd be like, Promethea's the best thing he's done. You know, he's done some great stuff, but Promethea's the best thing. What's the best thing he's done? Watchmen. Just read Watchmen. It's the best thing he's done. Now I know it's from hell. But Promethea's... Oh, you haven't read Tom Strong. <laughs> Promethea is, uh, is, is well up there. And it got a lot of criticism at the time because... Uh, People would would say uh, they go uh, well. It's just Alan Moore going on about magic, yeah. and I go, yeah, it's Alan Moore going on about magic. Why would you not want to read that? You lose it. Gorgeous artwork, absolutely brilliant in terms of innovation in you know comic storytelling. Um, a great story as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and you know, in talking about um, Alan Moore, talking about magic, he's he's been working on a project for a while with Steve Moore. Um, mm. which is the, the Moon and Serpent Bumper Book of Magic, which is essentially going to be oh, Alan Moore. And Serpent. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The Moon being representative Selene, which is the, the goddess that Steve Moore worships, and the Serpent referring to Glycon, which is Alan Moore's uh, 
deity of choice. That's going to be their treatise on the idea of magical practice and the occult. It's been years in the making, and I think it probably will be years more in the making, just because they seem determined to make it so comprehensive. I mean, when it comes out, it's going to be essential to look at. Even if you have no interest in magic whatsoever, even if you think it's complete uh, bunkum nonsense, it's going to be... Just because if you look at what these guys tend to produce, it's going to be beautiful work, it's going to be uh, funny, and it's going to be so rewarding as a reader. In terms of Alan Moore writing about place as well, I mean, one of the key elements to unearthing is the idea. There's a, uh, again, going back to the, the piece, there's a great phrase where he talks about Steve Moore as a man who sleeps no more than four paces from the place he was born, which is fantastic. And it was an idea that fascinated me, sort of like thinking about unearthing and thinking about Alan Moore as a creator as well, because he has never lived outside of Northampton. And the idea of Northampton, the place itself, is constantly uh, reflected in his work. He's, he, he, I think I've read a quote from him before that he said, um, no matter what I'm writing, I'm always writing about Northampton. So it's the idea of, you know, similar to Steve Moore, the place shaping the man. He's written a novel called The Voice of the Fire, which takes place in Northampton, starting during the Ice Age up to the present day. And each chapter essentially takes place at a different period of time. The best-known element of the book is the fact that the first chapter takes place during uh, sort of Neolithic times, and you follow a tribe around who have a very basic language. And it's almost like uh, A Clockwork Orange, where you spend the first page just sort of going, there's no meaning here. Then slowly as you read it, you sort of see the pattern and the syntax emerge. And by the end of it, it's a perfect natural entry. But you sort of see the the evolution of language with the evolution of civilization uh, through the book. It's fantastic. But it also uh, fascinated people because it all takes place in one town. Alan Moore, for his next project, decided that Northampton as a whole was far too broad a span to work with. So his next book, uh, called Jerusalem, he's still working right now, will take place uh, on one street in Northampton, across a span of centuries. I think, at the moment, the word counts up to a quarter of a million words. It's bigger than the Bible is uh, how Alan Moore is uh, talking about it. Is that his uh, Beatles moment? (laughs) I was glad to get Alan Moore on the show for a number of reasons. Uh, Firstly, because it was wonderful to hear him talk so uh, beautifully about South London. Uh, Secondly, because it's, I think, hugely significant for us as a show to get someone of that stature. I think that's uh, very nice for us and very exciting for us to do that. Also, one of the things that happens far too often in the shop is people talk to me about Alan Moore as if uh, he's a recluse or an angry man. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, he is constantly making public appearances and is a <laughs> lovely man. Yeah, yeah, he's got a real false image, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. People see him as a kind of misanthropic, uh, impenetrable... You know, I think the, partly... The is... I mean, partly it's based on the fact that um, he's not been happy with uh, the f- um, 
not just the adaptations of his stuff, but just the very fact that it's been adapted. Yeah. And he's got good reasons for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, 99% of interviews seem to be designed to talk to him about this thing. That he's talked about... So He's very firmly on the record about all of these points that you're going to ask him about. Don't ask him about Watchmen. He doesn't want to talk about it anymore. So as we said, there's uh, plenty more on SouthLondonHardcore.com this week relating to unearthing and uh, to the interview. I feel I should acknowledge, Steve, that there will be a number of people listening that have never listened before. And uh, those people have got 61 back issues. Oh, episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Bagged and balded, ready to go. (laughs) Um, on our website, southlandhardcore.com. I you... want you to talk more about comics so you slip up and <laughs> say something ridiculous. Um, yeah, 61 episodes up there. If you click player, you can stream them. Or you go to iTunes, you can listen to the last 20 on iTunes. Or you click episode guide and scroll through and see what you like. Do Just you to think... give you a heads up, if you are listening for the first time, chances are you're here because you like comics. Oh. If you go for our episode guide, have a look. We've done an episode... Uh, specifically on comics yeah um, South London in comics and comics in South London we've also done uh, interviews with a couple of comic creators Owen Pomery and Richie Chandler quite recently we also did an episode where we visited um, a zine fest in South London where we talked to uh, a few creators and publishers so I'd say they would be um, your prime points to pick up on we're also on Twitter at SLHC and uh, if you go to facebook.com slash South London Hardcore If you're going to buy stuff from Amazon anyway, which you definitely are, go to southlandhardcore.com first and click the Amazon banner and even replace your Amazon link with the South London Hardcore Amazon link.